Good morning and welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Well, Pastor Farley is uh, traveling with his son up to uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point. As a lot of you probably know, uh, Jack was uh, accepted into West Point to uh, go to college there after he graduated from high school. And this is the, I guess, orientation week. They're going to take him up there, do some orientation, and then leave him there on Monday, tomorrow. So anyway, he's he's looking forward to a career in the U.S. Army. So let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for all the many blessings you have provided for us, most importantly for sending your only Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind and to provide the gift of eternal life to those who simply believe and trust in Jesus. We pray for safe travels for Pastor John and his family and for the health, safety, and needs of everyone here and our families as well as the persecuted Christians all over the world and for their deliverance from suffering, and for the United States of America to be convicted of our need for God. Please bless all of us and prepare our minds and hearts today as we seek to learn more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand for service. Well, thank you to the choir for that praise worship. Uh, good morning again. There's a uh, guest tablet in the lobby if you would like to sign in in case we have to notify you in any way for anything, um, as well as a prayer box and a prayer request forms that you can fill out if you would like to like us to pray for you at our 7 p.m. Thursday Bible study uh, and prayer group, which, by the way, will not be held next Thursday because of the 4th of July holiday. Uh, please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and you would like one. Um, as you know, each month we feature a different missionary organization that we pray for and send support from Lighthouse Bible. We encourage you to do the, this also in any way that you feel you're able. This month it is uh, Village Ministries International. VMI is a non-denominational Christian ministry designed to take both the gospel and teaching of God's word to the people of the world. Um, The target areas are villages and remote cities that ordinarily would not um, be exposed to missionary activity or Bible teaching. Please pray for this important ministry and support it as the Lord leads. You can donate here by noting VMI on your check or go to their website Uh, at www.villageministries.org. Good. Okay, well, today we're going to be um, looking at trading the old for the new in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. As you may recall, back in April, we studied... um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and the imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven for all who believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At the end of that study, we briefly got into chapter 2, and that's where we're going to begin today with a little short review of uh, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, and then we'll go right into chapter 2 and also into chapter 3. So, 
to turn your Bibles, uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Okay, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So, Verses 1 through 3 uses therefore, meaning because of the wonderful blessings that they received as described in chapter 1 previously, the audience composed mostly of Jewish believers is exhorted to put aside the old ways and long to learn the word of God as a baby longs for milk. This is so we can grow in the knowledge of our salvation and all the blessings that we receive through faith in Christ because of the kindness of the Lord. And keep going in um, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So as we saw last time, verse 6 is a quote from Isaiah 28:16, in, in which the Lord promises a cornerstone to cancel the covenant with death for those who believe in it. As we have seen previously, Christ is the cornerstone on which the Christian faith is built. So I'm just going to read Isaiah 28, 16, but you don't have to turn there. Um, so, therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And there are more references to this stone in Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, and Daniel chapter 2, but we're not going to go into that now. So you get the picture. He's, Peter is quoting Isaiah in his, uh, his message. So this was, a, this was a letter written to, uh, as we saw before, you can see the, what's modern-day Turkey up there. Uh, all, he wrote this lesson to all those two um, Bithynia, Galatia, Smyrna, um, Lycia, all these other places up there in in what's they used to be called Asia, and now it's called Turkey. So, anyway, we'll continue in uh, verse seven. Um, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race. You Jewish believers, he's talking to, and all believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the author, again, is explaining to these believing Jews that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and God's people, and that their behavior should reflect that. So this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is of precious value to those who believe, but a stumbling block to those who reject him, as the Jews did during his life, and many still do today. So moving on to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Again, in chapter 1, Peter refers to these congregations in Asia as aliens and strangers and instructs them as to how they should behave as Christians. So, um, in in 2.12, he goes on to say, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in that thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So excellent behavior glorifies the Lord and is an example to unbelievers. And it also, yeah, and it glorifies the Lord. So we might ask, what is excellent behavior? Well, Peter's going to tell us all about that in the next verses. So in verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if... If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So, in verse 13 and 14, we are told that if we submit to the authority of our leaders and those in authority, we are to submit to the authority. This means obeying the law, paying our taxes, and such. We are to use our freedom to do God's will, and not for evil, and love the brethren. So Peter continues to command believers to respect and obey their masters. Today, I would think that would mean maybe our bosses, those we work for, um, as um, hopefully there's no Christian slaves, at least in America. Furthermore, he instructs us to endure hardship with patience and without constant complaining. 
So if we conduct ourselves not in the fleshly lusts, but in respect and submission for authority, honoring all people, loving the brotherhood, this glorifies God. If we still do these things and suffer in spite of them or because of them, then God is pleased at our faith in him. So, um, Peter himself suffered for his acts of teaching and performing miracles in Jesus' name and rejoiced in that suffering. In Acts chapter 3 through 5, Peter and John, along with other apostles as well, were imprisoned twice for healing lame and sick people in Jesus' name and spreading the gospel and the teachings of our Lord. Then when the angels let them out of prison, they were flogged for continuing to preach the resurrection of Christ. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 28, we'll uh, read a little story about that. Okay, Acts uh, 5, beginning in verse 28. The high priest was saying to the apostles, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, the Pharisees, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him too. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So, or else you may be even found to be fighting against God. So they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they, the disciples, the apostles rather, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, one thing I... I don't think the uh, Pharisees actually listened to all of Gamaliel's advice because he said, leave them alone, but then they flogged them. So, uh, anyway, they suffered for for Christ. Uh, 
So even being thrown in jail for teaching about Christ and then escaping only to be caught and flogged, Peter and John went right back to teaching and preaching Jesus as Savior and rejoicing that they were considered worthy of suffering for Christ. The Pharisees and priests had no legal right to forbid the apostles to preach the gospel. Therefore, the apostles had every right to disobey the Pharisees and continue to preach the gospel. So, continuing on in verse 21... For you have been called to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Another quote from Isaiah. And while being reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, God the Father. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So all of this is because We're told here to follow Jesus' example of love, humility, submission, and respect. Love for all people, humility before authority, submission and respect for the will of the Father, his authority. Uh, With regard to the verses that we uh, were looking at, Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 22 to 25, and you could turn there if you want, um, but save your place in First Peter. So Jesus told uh, the Pharisees that they should pay their taxes to the government. Because the Pharisees asked Jesus in Luke 20 and 22, verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And Paul, in the epistle to Romans chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1, if you want to turn there, you could turn to Romans 13.1. Okay, Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have oppressed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. 
But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So a question is, if we are to obey God's word and be in submission to authority, then what happens when there's a conflict and we are directed by human authorities to do something that is clearly against God's word? I think it's clear that we are to render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God. This could be a difficult decision in some cases, but I think we can simplify it greatly by understanding that Jesus and Paul are talking about our own actions and not trying about trying to control or force the actions of others. If we're told not to evangelize or read our Bible in our workplace or on company time, then we should obey the authority of our employer as it is his workplace and his money paying us for our work. If we're told not to evangelize on our own time, uh, then we can obey the authority of God, even though we could be punished or suffer in some way for that. And uh, another example could be if we're asked, if we should be asked by the authority as part of our jobs to serve people who have a lifestyle that we know is against God's command, I think we should do that with grace. On the other hand, If we're asked by that authority to join in or promote that ungodly lifestyle, then we should obey God, even with the risk of possible punishment. In Peter's case, he was asked not to do what he was sent by the Lord to do. So he obeyed God rather than the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he suffered for it. In Jesus' case, he was humble before the authorities and yet did the complete will of the Father by submitting to scourging and crucifixion. But then again, he is Jesus. So all of this, I believe, is applicable to believers today as much as it was when it was written. Okay, let's move on to um, chapter 3 and verse 1 of First Peter. And this is where it gets a little sticky. We'll see. We'll see. But there will be redemption for this. Okay. Um, Peter says in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. This submissive behavior is showing faith and obedience to God's command and being an example to the husband who may not be a believer or who may be more worldly. Of course, in submission, submission in marriage follows the same principles as submission in other spheres. We submit to God-appointed authority as our obligation before God, unless that authority directs us to do something we know is against God's command. In that case, it is right to obey God rather than man, um, as we saw in Acts 
chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, which I'm not going to go there now, but you can look that up later if you'd like. Um, we talked about that in the last message on First Peter, chapter 1. So, submission to authority can be totally consistent with equality and in importance, dignity, on and honor. Jesus was subject to both of his parents and to God the Father, but was not lower than either of them. Thus, the command to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferior position or lesser importance. The principle of submission is presented in many different ways in the New Testament. And I'm going to just pop through a couple of them now, a few of them. We're not going to turn to any of these, but uh, if you want to write these down or you can look them up later or I have copies of this in the back that anybody can get later. So this is going to be quick. So we're talking about the principle of submission, which is what Peter is teaching on right now in this, uh, in this chapter. Citizens should submit to the government authority in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 5, Titus 3, and 1 Peter 2.13. The universe will submit to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15.27 and Ephesians 1.22. Unseen spiritual beings will submit to Jesus, 1 Peter 3.22. Christians should submit to their church leaders, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 and 16, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Wives should submit to their husbands, Colossians 3, 18, Titus 2, 5, 1 Peter 3, 5, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. The church should submit to Jesus, Ephesians 5, 24. Servants should submit to their masters, Titus 2, verse 9, and 1 Peter 2, 18, which we already saw today. All Christians should submit to God, Hebrews 12, 9, and James 4, 7. So again, none of this means that the one submitting is of less worth or lower than who they are submitting to. Citizens aren't lower than government. Workers aren't lower than their bosses. Wives are not lower than their husbands. So moving on to verse 3, Peter continues talking to the wives saying, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submission, submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. So Peter did not forbid outward adornment, jewelry, hairstyles, or dresses, but emphasized inward adornment by the beauty of their behavior and demeanor, such as a gentle and quiet spirit in your heart. This gentle and quiet spirit of submissiveness 
is intended to be an example of faith in God, thereby possibly leading an unbelieving husband to Christ or convicting one to be more godly than worldly. So uh, here's where uh, the, women's are redeemed. the women are redeemed by this, the wives. So in, uh, continuing on in, in verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And we, we're going to break that down a little bit. Um, there's a lot in that verse. Live with your wives. A godly husband lives with his wife. He doesn't merely share a house, but he truly lives with her. He recognizes the great point of Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5, that husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's in Ephesians 5.28. And the godly husband understands the essential unity or oneness God has established between the husband and wife. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This certainly implies the highest possible sacrificial love. So Ephesians 5.25, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, this certainly implies the highest possible sacrificial love for the husband, for the wife. And Peter goes on to say, with understanding... A godly husband undertakes the important job of understanding his wife. By knowing her well, he is able to demonstrate his love for her far more effectively. And when a husband has this understanding, God directs him to use it in that he is to dwell with his wife with understanding. He is supposed to take his wife, his understanding and apply it in his daily life with his wife. Giving honor. A godly husband knows how to make his wife feel honored. Though she submits to him, he takes care that she does not feel like she is an employee or a servant. In giving honor to the wife, the word in the ancient Greek language for the wife is a rare word, meaning more literally the feminine one. So it suggests that the woman's feminine nature should prompt the husband to honor her. And this was a radical teaching in the world that Peter lived in. In that ancient culture, a husband had absolute rights over his wife, and the wife had virtually no rights over the husband. In the Roman world, if a man caught his wife in the act of adultery, he could kill her on the spot. But if a wife caught her husband, she could do nothing against him. All of the duties and obligations in marriage were put on the wife. So Peter's radical teaching is that the husband has God-ordained duties and obligations toward his wife. And he goes on, as to the weaker vessel. In this context, the weaker speaks of the woman's relative physical weakness in comparison to men. Men are not necessarily stronger spiritually than women, but they are generally stronger physically. As Peter brought in the idea of a woman's feminine nature with the words, the wife, he continues in appreciating the feminine nature and how a husband should should respond to it. 
Therefore, a godly husband recognizes whatever limitations his wife has physically, and he does not expect more from her than is appropriate and kind. And he says, uh, continues saying, heirs together, this reminds husbands that even though they have been given great authority within the marriage, their wives are still equal to them in spiritual privilege and eternal importance as they are joint heirs. And finally, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And the the failure to live as a godly husband has spiritual consequences. It can hinder prayer. So don't let your prayers be hindered by not honoring your wife. So we'll move on to verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you who were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here Peter is exhorting the believers to be harmonious and treat everyone with compassion and kindness, even when treated in the opposite way with insults or evil or deceit. The King James, as well as several other translations, translate the Greek word homophon as of one mind or like-minded, as opposed to instead of harmonious, which seems to imply a sort of unity of the body of Christ. And I think Pastor John's been talking a lot about unity of the church and the body of Christ in his lessons. But this command brings us back to the need to know God's word. We can't be of one mind, the mind of Jesus, if we don't know what his mind is. The word of God shows us the mind of Jesus. As in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 16... For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is the word of God. So, he says, be of one mind, and this speaks to the essential unity of God's people. We are one, but we are not all the same. While we should be all of one mind, we can't expect everyone to be like us. God has built both unity and diversity in, among his people. So, every cell of your body is different, and each one has its role to play. But every cell in your body has the same DNA DNA code written in it, the master plan for the whole body. Every cell of your body has the same mind. We could say that Christians are to be like a choir. Each one sings with their own voice, and some sing different parts, but everyone sings to the same music and harmony with one another. So our goal here should be to follow God's command to grow in the knowledge of God's word. As in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and again, you don't have to turn there. Um, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And 2 Peter three eighteen, 
but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about a lot of things and suffering is one. So what happens about, what is it, what about fear of suffering? What do we do about that? Well, Peter tells us a little bit about suffering in uh, chapter 3 and verse 13 and following. So he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And we, we talked about the word hope last time, and the word hope in most uh, contexts in the Bible means to have confident confident expectation. It doesn't mean like, oh, I hope, I hope I'll win the lottery, but... It means to have confident expectation of of a result. So, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should so will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So Peter explains that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong, which may be just punishment for the wrongdoing. If suffering for righteousness, then this may be used for God's purpose and to be an example of faith in God and Christ. Of course, the ultimate suffering was that our Lord unselfishly suffered on the cross for all of us sinners, even though he was sinless. So, moving forward in verse 18, he talks about that. He says, Peter says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And the baptism that Peter's talking about here is is, uh, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which we all receive at the moment we trust in Christ. So Peter uses Noah's deliverance through the water, likening it to baptism, but is quick to point out that it's an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings salvation, not the removal of dirt from the flesh by water baptism. Okay, so uh, we're going to uh, sum up uh, some of the things we learned um, in First Peter chapter 2 and 3. 
We're told to abstain from our old fleshly lusts, trading the old for the new, and uh, to keep our behavior excellent as this glorifies the Lord. And we, uh, we saw a little bit about what that is. Um, we are told also to submit to the legitimate authority, uh, the government, and pay our taxes and all that, and to use our freedom to honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, and honor the king, which would be the government, government leaders. We're told to be submissive, submissive to our bosses without constant complaining, and to rejoice if you suffer for doing right. And we're told to pay our taxes, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love and honor the wife. And all of us are to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through learning God's word. And uh, learning how to treat others and be an example to the world glorifies Christ, glorifies God, and uh, makes people be interested in Christians and Christianity. So that's it for today, for our lesson. And uh, as we close our service today, uh, I have to say that all of those things are what the things that we talked about, the behaviors and everything are what we're supposed to do, what we're told to do by God, um, but they're not necessary for our salvation. So as we close our service today, if anyone has not believed in Christ as your personal Savior, now is the time to make that decision. We know that we cannot earn or deserve salvation or eternal life. As Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not from works, so that no one can boast. And in John chapter 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son in order that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So God has made salvation so simple that all you have to do is close your eyes and tell God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, was resurrected by God, and trusted him as my Lord and Savior. So Lighthouse Bible Church is a grace ministry and is supported by gifts from believers who desire to support the teaching of God's word. We don't ask for pledges of money and we don't pass the plate, but our ministry does have needs. And so keep that in your thoughts and prayers. If God puts it on your heart to help support this ministry, there's a box in the back that you can put uh, your donation in there, or you can simply mail a check or donate online on our website. And uh, due to the 4th of July policy, I think I said this before, there will be no Bible study next Thursday. So let's close in prayer. Father, 
Thank you for allowing us to worship you and study your word today. And we ask that you bless us with your loving grace and answer our prayers as we leave today. Help us to keep the confidence in the blessings we have in Christ at the forefront of our mind when we are experiencing the struggles and disappointments that life can bring. In the name of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming. Have a great week.